Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And our next passage is Hebrews 3, 1 through 8. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And as we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, as Jackson mentioned, we begin Advent season. It's a, it's a very special time in the life of uh, any believer, um, and it's a very exciting time. We, we obviously remember this great gift that God has given us in sending his son, Jesus, but we remember that the coming of Jesus is in two comings, if you will. That's the word. That's what the word means, adventus. It, it's Latin for the comings. It's, it's the comings of Jesus, not just the one coming, but the two comings of Jesus. The prophets of old spoke of a king who would come and make all things new, as Blake just prayed, and restore all things, make all things right, who would reign, who would uh, reestablish his people, who... Uh, would do away with all evil. And of course, the prophets also spoke of a coming servant that would come and serve and lay down his life for his people, be crushed for the sins of the people, pierced for the transgressions of the people. And, and so it's a mystery. In fact, the Jewish people, was one of the reasons they rejected Jesus is they didn't understand the two comings of Jesus. They, they were looking for the second coming kinds of things in his first coming. But Jesus, of course, comes in two ways. And so this Advent season, we look back to his first coming when he came as this merciful, compassionate servant who laid down his life for our transgression so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could be restored into fellowship with God the Father. But we also, in the Advent, look forward to his second coming. And I guess my challenge to you would be spend as much time this Advent season thinking about the second coming of Jesus as you do spending, spend thinking about the first coming of Jesus. Spend as much time thinking about the second coming. Think about when Christ will return, when he'll restore everything, when he'll make everything right. Think about that. Spend time meditating on that. Does your life line up in line with that, do you live expectantly toward the return of the Lord, toward the reign of Christ? Spend as much time in this Advent season thinking about the second coming of Jesus as you would thinking about the first coming of Jesus. And, and, and we want to do that. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the book of Hebrews. Now, the book of Hebrews 
um, has been in the news recently. Uh, for those of you avid Jeopardy fans out there, uh, Ken Jennings last week, final Jeopardy question, uh, he asked, what, which one of Paul's letters is most cited, or most cites the Hebrew Bible, most cites the Old Testament? And of course, everybody wrote down their answers. And um, the winning answer, according to Ken Jennings, was Hebrews. Now, of course, a lot of Christian scholars, and, and I would agree with them, actually don't think that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. I, I don't, I think there was another author of the Hebrews, we don't really know who it was. Um, and so that would disqualify, obviously, that answer. And then there's also some problems with what you mean by citation or just references to the Old Testament. Um, but anyway, Romans, I think, is the correct answer. But anyway, <laughs> I'm no Ken Jennings, but, um, but it, it makes the point. Ken Jennings makes the point that I'm trying to make in this sermon series is that Hebrews is very concerned with this. Hebrews is very concerned with pointing the people to Jesus, the fulfillment of this revelation, this revelation of old. And basically the point of the book is Jesus fulfills the prophets. Jesus fulfills the, the types, the, the, all these characters, these themes, these people that we see in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Old Testament, they're, they're all fulfilled in the person and in the work of Jesus. Look at how the, look at how the book begins. Amy read this for us. Long ago, in many ways, and at many times, God spoke. God's been revealing himself. He spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, this, in this time, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the whole world. God has been speaking by these prophets, but now his own son, the, the very God himself, the son of God, the one who created the whole world, has now fully and clearly and strongly communicated these truths of God to us. You know, it's interesting. A lot of New Testament books begin this way. John 1 kind of, John kind of begins this way. Colossians kind of begins this way. First uh, John kind of begins this way. God has been speaking. God has been revealing. But now a revelation has come that is stronger and greater and more fulfilling than anything else that God has ever shown us. And of course, that is what he has shown us in his son, Jesus. So in the next few weeks, that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna think about the advent, the coming of Jesus, the fulfillment of these things. And we're gonna look forward. We're gonna think also about the second coming of Jesus. Now today, we're gonna look at Jesus as the prophet, the, the true prophet of God. Put the artwork back up there. We, we, we had these... Uh, um, Pieces of art, they're going, to, they're going to be coming through. I just think, the, I'm, I'm so proud of these. The, the, our creative team put these together. They're just so great. But there's a little sign to us of this Advent season. Jesus, the true prophet, the greater Moses, the one who comes with a more clear and pure word from God himself. So three things I want to look at with you today. Uh, number one, our need for a prophet. Number two, the problem with prophets and number three, the good news of Jesus. So let's look at our need for a prophet. Uh, I, I hope you all know we, we have text to pastor. You all know about text to pastor. It's on your bulletin. You can text us anytime. Uh, it's an anonymous thing unless you tell us who you are. But we got a text to pastor this week. I was so proud 
This was such a sophisticated question. Somebody asked me about the Nova effect, and I was like, wow, these, Christ's covenant is so smart. Um, but the Nova effect, it's a concept by the philosopher Charles Taylor, and basically it's this concept that says in a secular age, in, in kind of our modern age, um, people look to all sorts of things for meaning, right? Um, the, the, the simplest way to kind of, the, the, the simplest expression of the Nova effect is you do you, right? You do you. You, you look internally for meaning. It, it used to be in, in olden days, in a different age, people looked externally for meaning, right? You, you, you got meaning from external things, from God, you got meaning from your community, right? You, you had to be accepted by external things. That's where you understood your meaning. Your parents, right? You, you wanted to be, you wanted to have your parental approval. Those external authorities, if you will, authority figures gave you a sense of meaning. And obviously post-modernity is a rejection of that. It's the, it's the Nova effect, right? And so what Charles Taylor's doing there is he's saying it's like the explosion of the star, right? Now, the star used to be um, like a supernova, right? The star used to be um, where everybody would look for meaning. There was a central place. People looked to God for meaning. Now people look everywhere for meaning. People are finding meaning in all sorts of things. And, and in, a lot of, in a lot of the time, it's actually... Uh, not, in, not in the way that they were raised, not in the, the authority structures that they recognized as a child. It's actually in breaking away from those things. And, and Charles Taylor talks about this as the, the coming of age narrative, right? When I, I grew up in Alabama, and Alabama, you know, still very old-fashioned, sweet Alabama, you know? And so in Alabama, you hear things like, um, well, that's not how I was raised, Right? Um, or that's not what my daddy told me. There, there still is this more traditional understanding of meaning morality. I was raised this way. I was taught that these things were correct and true and right. And so that's how I know that they're true and right. There's an authority from where I've come from, from the lineage, things outside of myself. Um, but of course, in a, in a city like Atlanta, that may be a little bit different. Uh, you may be more prone to the coming of age narrative, which would actually say, I actually find meaning by rejecting those things that I came from. I actually find meaning by kind of breaking away uh, from the stricter childhood. If this is a little, uh, you know, if this is not making sense, let me quote from Ariel from The Little Mermaid. She really displays this. You know, this is her, her song, um, Part of your world. This is the coming of age narrative. This is Charles Taylor's coming of age narrative. What would I give if I could live out of these waters? What would I pay to spend a day out on the sand? Bet you on land, they understand. And I don't, I don't sing Ariel, but you know, I had a request to sing. I can't, I can't do Ariel. Maybe, uh, maybe Neil Diamond, but not Ariel. It says, bet you on land, they understand, and they don't reprimand their daughters, right? You need to reject your dad, you know, the, the bright young women, sick of swimming, ready to stand, right? You're going you're gonna sell, to be self-expressive. You know, you're going to find meaning within. Don't, don't trust those underwater structures that, you know, have so suppressed you. Go to the land where everybody's free, out of the sea. Wish I could be a part of your world. This is the coming-of-age narrative. This is Charles Taylor's coming-of-age narrative. You can't trust where you came from. You can trust breaking free from that. You can trust what your heart is telling you. You can trust what is within now, that's post-modernity. I mean, that's, that's the essence. You do you. That's kind of the, 
the ethic of postmodernity. Now, the problem, and this is interesting, postmodernity, and, and again, it's hard to talk about these things when you're like living in them, but, but postmodernity, I believe, like in 100 years when we go back and study philosophy, it will be a short lived philosophical experiment. Because you do you doesn't really work, right? It only works as long, it only works until you run into another person, right? It only works until you come up against another person who's doing them, right? Who's doing something different. And, and then all of a sudden, those people in conflict feel the need to appeal to some order, to some authority, to something higher than that. You know, COVID was really revealing in this way. Uh, you know, everybody that I know, nobody wanted for anybody to get sick. Nobody wanted for anybody to, um, everybody wanted to flatten the curve. Nobody wanted to, you know, do anything that was, uh, might hurt people in a, in a health kind of way. But most of the people I talked to in COVID, their anxiety, and not that, obviously there was real health concerns there, but their anxiety more so didn't come from health fear, but more from like social or moral fear even, right? And there was two sides of that, right? So some people, I didn't want to be perceiving doing anything immoral, right? I didn't want to be perceiving as the person that, you know, didn't care. I didn't want to be perceiving as the person that was spreading this around. And so there was extreme measures that may be taken on that side, other people were just the opposite, right? They didn't want to be perceived as bowing to the system. And so they would almost be defiant about not wearing a mask or not doing what was asked of them just to prove their point. And that was a, that was a moral stake too. The, the point I'm trying to make in this, again, is that this became about more than just health decisions. It was moral decisions. People need a morality. <laughs> you do you failed us in public policy, right? You do you doesn't work with public policy decisions. There, there has to be some order that you appeal to. There, there has to be some authority, some morality. It can't just come from within. And so, because that's true, people are actually looking for a prophet. People want a prophet. People want someone that speaks with authority. A prophet... The definition of a prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God, on behalf of the one who has authority, to man, to humanity. That's what a prophet does. So if you think, well, what does the Old Testament prophets do? What do priests do? What's the difference there? The prophet speaks on God's behalf to humanity. And people want a prophet. People instinctively know that there has to be some authority. There has to be some order. That's why postmodernity will be a short-lived experiment. And actually, this is what we read. This is actually how the, chapter 3 starts out. What I've been saying is the beginning of chapter 3. Look at verse 1. The author of Hebrews says it this way. You who share in the heavenly calling. I love the way he says that. You who share in the heavenly calling. Do you have the heavenly calling? You know what I'm talking about? The heavenly calling. Don't you have it? I've got it. I know that God is out there, right? I know that there's more than this. I know that there's an order. I know that there is some authority. I have the heavenly calling. You have these transcendent moments. I mean, even the most secular people I know, I don't know anybody that doesn't have the heavenly calling. I, I've never met anybody that, that genuinely doesn't know. You know, one of my very dear friends, I've been friends with this person since childhood. 
This person's incredibly secular. They would claim atheism, yet they often will ask me to pray for them about this or that. And, you know, a couple years ago, their father died, and they said, they said, I know he's out there somewhere. I, they, they, they has a heavenly calling. <laughs> There's this just transcendence in us. We, we all share in that. You who share, you who share in the heavenly calling. The author of Ecclesiastes says it this way. God has put eternity in the heart of man. It's the same thing, right? There's something in your heart. Like, you don't have to be taught this. You just know there's, there's more out there. There's a God out there. Blaise Pascal says that we all have this God-shaped vacuum in our hearts. We have this heavenly calling. We know there's a God. And so, we want a prophet, right? We, we want to hear from him. There, there is this distinct desire that everyone has. I want to hear from God. I know he's out there. I have this heavenly calling. There has to be a prophet. The question becomes then, okay, well, who is it? Like, who can you trust that's actually speaking on behalf of God? Islam, of course, says that Muhammad is the prophet of God. Mormons believe that Joseph Smith is a prophet of God. Some Americans uh, followed people like Elijah Muhammad or David Koresh. These were self-proclaimed prophets. Paul Simon, the words of the prophets are written on the subway walls in tenements halls, and whispered in the sound of silence. We're all looking for the prophets, aren't we? We all want to know what's true. Again, get back to the COVID illustration. Everybody had their authority. (laughs) You have to listen to me because the prophet said so, right? Some authority, some, some appeal that was built in some foundation that could not be denied. But who is the prophet? Of course, the author of Hebrews says, there is one who didn't just speak on behalf of God, but is God. And he has spoken, he has revealed God to us, God's own son, Jesus. But there's a problem with prophets, and that's my second point. We know we need a prophet. We may have heard from a prophet. God has sent prophets before, Uh, This text is obviously talking about Moses, and Moses was a good prophet. Uh, Moses, as chapter, verse 2 and verse 4 says, he was faithful in all of God's house. Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Now, what the author of Hebrews is doing here, just like Ken Jennings says he was, is he's actually quoting the Old Testament. This is a citation from Numbers, Numbers 12, 6 through 8. Listen to this. God says, hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, right? So God's saying here, there's these prophets that are out there. I've spoken to them, but most prophets, this is how I speak. It's a dream. It's a vision. It's, it's kind of a mysterious way. But look what he says of Moses. Not so with Moses. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful In all my house. That's the citation. This is what the author of Hebrews is picking up on. With him, with Moses, God says, I speak mouth to mouth. I just talk to him. I speak clearly. Not in riddles. And he beholds the form of God. So eventually the author of Hebrews here is saying that Jesus is greater than Moses, but he's not saying that Moses is bad. 
He's actually saying Moses is the man. I mean, Moses is the greatest of the prophets. The other prophets, dreams, riddles, visions. It was kind of confusing. Moses, mouth to mouth. Moses, clear, right? Moses was a good prophet. God spoke to him clearly and he spoke to the people clearly. But there was a problem. Even though Moses was a good prophet, even though Moses was faithful in all the house of God, the people still rejected him. (laughs) The people still didn't listen to him. We all need a prophet and God has sent prophets, yet the people still, even when God sends a prophet, don't listen. And of course, now the text is saying that a better prophet has come. Look at verse three. For Jesus has been counted uh, worthy of more glory. He is weightier, the the Hebrew word for glory is kavod. It's, it's weightier, it's denser, it's with more authority, right? It's, 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 it's harder to go against. You, you can't go against the authority of the more glorious one. It's the weightier one, the thicker one here. It says now there's one that is even weightier, more glorious than Moses. And he says as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. So what is the author of Hebrews saying here? He's saying, now a prophet has come and he's weightier, he's more glorious than Jesus in the same way that the builder of a house is more glorious than the house itself. And so what is is he doing? What What is the relation to the builder of the house and the house? Why is the builder of the house more glorious than the house? And the answer is because the builder built the house. I mean, the builder made the house. And so because the builder made the house, he has authority over the house. Therefore, he's more glorious than the house. So what is the author of Hebrews doing here? He's saying Jesus is more worthy than Moses because you think Jesus came after Moses, but he really came before Moses. Jesus built Moses. Jesus made Moses. Jesus created Moses. This is his point in verse one of, or verse two of chapter one. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. You know, the author of Hebrews is, is amazed by this, and so should we be. That the very one that through whom God created the whole world has now come and revealed God to us, and spoken to us, and been among us. So here's the point. In olden days, there were faithful prophets. There were good prophets. Moses was a really good prophet. God spoke to him mouth to mouth. He spoke to the people clearly. But now one has come that is even greater. Look at verse one of chapter three. You who share in the heavenly calling, right? Remember that, that, this heavenly haunting. You know there's a God out there. You want a prophet. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. Consider Jesus, the apostle. The word apostle It comes from the Greek apostolos. It means the one sent, the person sent. Consider the one that God sent, his own son, Jesus, the one who has greater authority than Moses. You who want to hear from some authority, from some prophet, consider the one that God sent himself, the one who is God. But there's a problem. In the olden days, God sent prophets and the people didn't listen. (laughs) They rejected them. And now God has sent one even more glorious, his own son, God himself, through whom he made the whole world. And the people didn't even listen to him. The people couldn't live by his words. The people rejected him. 
You know, Jesus tells this story of these tenant farmers. It shows up in three gospels. It's an important story. And he tells the story of this, this master, this owner, and he builds this great vineyard. And, he, and you, you get the picture. He buys the land. He builds the vineyard. He, he puts a wall around it. Jesus gives all this detail. There's a wall around the vineyard. There's a wine press. He's, Jesus is saying, this is like the greatest vineyard. There's a tower. They can keep watch. There's a master. And he, he just he builds this amazing vineyard, and, and he leases it to these farmers. And, and they have this amazing vineyard that they didn't do any of the work to establish. Jesus established this amazing vineyard, and he leases it to these farmers. The master goes away. Well, it's time for the lease payment. We understand lease payments, right? The master sends a servant to go and get his share. He's leasing the property. He's getting his share of the fruit from the tenant farmers. And you know what these guys do? I mean, he's built this amazing farm for them. It's an amazing vineyard for them. It's a tower. There's a wall. He's taking care of everything. He's entrusted it to them. And he sends a servant to them just to get his pay, just to get the things that he's asked for, just to get the thing that they had already agreed upon. And you know what they do when, when the servant goes? They kill the servant. And the master sent another servant. And you know what they do to that servant? They kill him too. And finally the master says, you know what, I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send my son. They'll respect my son. And so he sends his son to go and take care of the thing that he had entrusted to these tenants. He says, look, I'm giving you this amazing vineyard. I've entrusted it to you, and all you got to do is do these things that I've asked you to do. And the son came asking for the lease payment, and they killed him too. You get the point of the story. God has entrusted all of this to us, this world to live in. He just says, live by my order, and we didn't do it. And he sent a prophet, and he sent a prophet, and he sent a prophet. And you know what the people did to the prophets? This is just a couple chapters before. This story shows up just right before Matthew 23 when Jesus is looking on Jerusalem, and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not. And a few chapters after that, these same priests that he's speaking to, the leaders of the people, were plotting together to kill Jesus, to kill the son, to get him out of the way. God had sent prophets to the people, and the people mistreated them, and they killed him, and then God sent his own son, this great revelation of himself, and the people killed him too. That's the problem with prophets. This is the problem with prophets. Everybody wants a prophet. Everybody wants the authority, right? We want the authority. We want to be able to look at our friends and say, uh-uh-uh, look, I, <laughs> I got the authority. I know what's the authority. Everybody wants the prophet. But you know what we don't want to do? We don't want the words of the prophet. We don't want the prophet to come to us. We don't want the prophet to limit us in any way. We don't have to listen to the prophet. We don't want to have to obey the prophet. And these people didn't obey the prophets. And, and let's be honest, guys, neither do we. How many of us love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? How many of us really love neighbor like we love ourselves? How many of us have taken the name of our Lord in vain? 
How many of us have not honored the Sabbath? How many of us have lusted and been greedy and been impatient and unforgiving and covetous? And I could go on and on and on. Our hearts are averse to the Lord. The problem was never the quality of the prophet. The problem was the hardness of the hearer. We want a prophet. We just don't want want what the prophet has to say. Which brings me to the third point. And that is the good news of Jesus You who share in the heavenly calling. I love that. That just grabbed me this week. I I get it. I know it. We know it. You who share in the heavenly calling. Consider Jesus. And then he says, the apostle, the one sent of God, the one sent with the word of God, the one sent on behalf of God, consider Jesus the apostle. But he doesn't stop there. And thank goodness he doesn't stop there. He also says, and the priest, the high priest of our confession, that heavenly calling. Consider Jesus. He's a prophet. He comes with the word of God. Consider him. But praise God, thank God in his mercy that he is also a priest. A prophet is one who comes and speaks on behalf of God to man. A priest is one who speaks to God on behalf of man. A priest is one who makes an appeal. Thank goodness that Jesus isn't just a prophet. He's not just a prophet. He does come with the order of God. He does come with the revelation of God, but he also comes as the priest of God. I was having a conversation last week with a friend of mine about the fear of the Lord. And we were talking about the difference between knowing God as a creator and knowing him as a creator, but also knowing him as a savior. Also knowing him as a redeemer. Also knowing about him as, as one who has saved us. Knowing God only as a creator is terrifying. I want you to say this to you. Some of you here, that's all, the only way you know God. You only know him as a creator. You, you only know him as the one that, that brings order. Now that is his goodness. That is a good way to know God. But if you only know him that way, it's terrifying to know him that way. Because who can live up to him? <laughs> who, who can obey his order? How many of us have listened to him? We can't live up to his order. We can't live up to his law. We can't even live up to our own standard, much less God's, right? Many of you have heard me give the Francis Schaeffer analogy before, but it's appropriate here. Francis Schaeffer said, all God would have to do to condemn us is to hang a tape recorder, a recording device around our necks that recorded all of the judgments that we made. That's actually all God would have to do to judge us. So all the times that you say, he shouldn't have done that, I can't believe someone would do something like that. I can't believe she did that. I can't believe that person thinks that is right. All God would have to do at the final judgment is take that little tape recorder out, you know, modernize it, take the recording out on, you know, his iPhone and say, here, listen. And here's the truth of the matter. None of us, none of us 
have even lived up to our own standard. (laughs) We would condemn ourselves. We would sit there listening to our own voice, bringing judgment against the very things that we practiced and did. We can't even live up to our own standard. How much less can we live up to the standard of God? We need to know God's order. If we didn't know God's order, we couldn't really know God. But if you only know God as an orderer, if you only know God as a creator, then you might fear him. You, you will fear him. But you can never love him. You can't really love him. Because if you, if you only know him as a creator, that's terrifying. We can't live up to his order. And so you always end up hiding. You know, if you only know God as a creator, you'll, you'll never be honest. You'll never be vulnerable. You'll hide all the time. Or you'll end up resenting God. Or you'll just end up suppressing the truth. You'll just say, ah, it's not true. It's not true. I don't believe it. There's two ways that people respond to the knowledge of God only as a creator. And that is either an extreme self-righteousness or extreme unrighteousness. That's the only two ways, right? If you only know God as a creator, you'll either become an incredibly self-righteous person always judging other people, always looking down on other people in an attempt to prove that you are actually living up to the order of God and they are not. Or you'll just (laughs) throw the sheet to the wind and you'll live unrighteous. You'll just say, I'm gonna live for pleasure. I'm just gonna do whatever I wanna do. I'm just gonna have as much fun as I possibly can. I'm just gonna suppress this truth and unrighteousness. I'm just gonna live for myself and have fun. Isn't that interesting? The, the, probably the most self-righteous person you know and the most unrighteous person you know in a traditional sense have the same root problem. And it is they don't really know God. They only know him as a creator. They don't know him. They don't know him as a redeemer. They don't know him as a priest. Jesus is a prophet. He comes on behalf of God and speaks God's truth and God's order to us, but he also is a priest. He has come on behalf of us to make an appeal to God on our behalf. And the appeal he makes is a perfect appeal. It's the appeal of his perfectly righteous life. His heart, his life, his mind was always in tune with the Father, and it's on behalf of his righteousness that he appeals to the Father. And he makes the appeal not only by his righteous life, but by his atoning blood. He died. He suffered God's judgment against all of our sin. And it is where he takes that blood and holds it up and says, this sin has been paid for. This sin has been paid for. This sin has been paid for. This person has been forgiven. Don't you see? Jesus is not just a prophet who speaks on God's behalf to us. He's, he's also a priest who speaks on our behalf to God. And he makes his appeal by his Perfect righteousness, he's the unblemished priest who died for our sins. He makes his appeal by his own blood. And if you're in Jesus, if he is your priest, if you're looking to him with this kind of confidence, I want you to hear this, there's no condemnation. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. You can approach the Father with boldness, knowing that he loves you because you have a great priest who's made an appeal for you. We sang this just a few moments ago. Thy judgment we no longer fear. Thy precious blood has brought us near. If you're in Christ Jesus, you're called sons and daughters to share in the forgiveness of God as 
as a beloved child, if you're in Christ Jesus, you will have an eternal inheritance with God in Christ. When you see God like this, when you realize that that Jesus is not just a prophet, (laughs) he's a priest, that the Father has put forward this sacrifice for you, to make an appeal for you, this, this priest for you, you'll realize that the Father actually loves you. You who share in this heavenly calling, you have this haunting heavenly calling, you know there's a God, you know you need a prophet, but you can't bear his words. Consider Jesus who came both as the apostle and the high priest. This is why the story of the prodigal son is so powerful. It's so powerful. Remember, if you only know Jesus as, if you only know God as the prophet, if you only know him as a creator, either self-righteousness, extreme self-righteousness, or extreme unrighteousness. That's the story of the prodigal son. (laughs) One story, or one son rather, extreme unrighteousness. The other son, extreme self-righteousness. They both knew their father. They knew their father as the Lord. They knew him as the leader. They knew him as the orderer. They knew him as the wealthy man. But then the younger son came home after ruining everything. And his father ran out to him and embraced him and killed the calf for him. And then the younger son knew him as a lover. As one who loved him, who's who's paid the price for his sin. And and who's rejoiced in the return of his beloved son. Do you know God like that? Do you know God like that? Do you know God like that? You may know him as creator, but do you know him as a redeemer? As the one who's paid the price for you, as the one who, despite, look, look, look. Listen, hey, I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this. I know you've made a mess of things. I know you've made a mess of things. I know you'd be terrified if your heart was really exposed today. Let me, can I I get real? Like I would too. I know you've made a mess of things. You have nothing to be ashamed of if you're in Christ. You have, a, you have a priest. You have a priest. You have a priest who is perfect, who's unblemished. And because he loves you, has put forward his own blood, he, he endured your death. He endured God's judgment. You have a priest. And so now there's no condemnation. You can approach God's throne boldly. You can know that the Father will receive you back in the earth. In fact, he doesn't just receive you. You know, we're about to take communion. You know what communion's a reminder to us of? When you see the Father, you know what he's, you know what he's got for you? A feast. He doesn't just welcome you in and say, hmm, okay, well, if you do a few chores, maybe. No, he welcomes you home with a feast. That's the... That's the great reunion. That's the marriage supper. That's when the church and God are finally united. That, that's, that's what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. For those of you with the heavenly calling, you know the heavenly calling. You know there's a God out there. You want to know him. We can't, we can't bear to just know him as a prophet, to just know him as a creator. He says, consider Jesus. Both prophet, both apostolos, both the one sent, but also priest, our high priest. And if you know God like that, if you really know God like that, both as prophet and as priest, it'll totally change your life. It'll change everything about you. Then Jesus really will be your king, not by force or by might. It's, it's actually the, 
It's the kindness of the Lord that brings us to repentance. If you know him like that, it's his love, it's his mercy that makes you bow the knee and follow him and listen to him and love him in every way. That's what this series is all about. Knowing Jesus as prophet, as priest, as king. Knowing him as he came in those ways in his first coming, but also as he will come in those ways when he comes again. Let's pray together. I just invite you to still your heart before the Lord. Look, I know you've made a mess of things, so does he. But I want you to hear this. Our confidence is not in our flesh. Our confidence is not in our achievement. Our confidence is not in our ability to always line up to the order. If it were, we would all be destroyed. We would all be condemned. But our confidence is in the fact those of us with this heavenly calling, we know there's a God We've been called to him. We've been forgiven by him. We've been saved from ourselves in Jesus. Consider Jesus, this great prophet, this great priest. And when you know him like that, he'll become your great king. Consider Jesus. Father, I pray, Lord, you would turn our hearts away from ourselves today, away from our other pursuits of justification and comfort and life. And you would turn our hearts toward Jesus, that we would consider Jesus, rest in him. We would realize that, Lord, in him you have shown us so much mercy and love and kindness and grace and favor. You've called us to be your sons. Call us to be your daughters. Lord, I pray that these truths would rest on the hearts of these people today and, and that our response, Lord, to knowing you as prophet and priest would be that we would then know you as king. We would do whatever you say. We would live the life, Lord, that you desire, Lord, that, that our response to you would just be one of such obedience and gratitude and love as, as faithful and good children. I pray, Lord, you'd use this meal now to give us both a look back and a look forward. A look back to the cross and a look forward to the feast. I pray this in Jesus' name.